Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series of patient interviews. And let's move on to a real story. So we're very lucky to have Dr. Paul Bean with us, who's coming to us having experienced this within his family. He's going to tell us about his experience of caregiving for his wife, Marin. We've got Dr. Charles Van Gunten with us today and Dr. Christine Hudak. Christine was involved in his care. Charles and Christine are going to conduct an interview. And I want you to think about what's the value of early referral to palliative hospice care as they tell their story. And then we'll come back and debrief it afterwards. Fair enough? Okay, so please join us. Tell me about your wife's illness. It, um, thank you guys for this. Um, I, I feel honored to be here in front of you. And if I could, if you could, if I can share our story with you, I, I think you'd find great value in that. Um, in, dis, in November of 2014, I took my wife on a surprise trip to Napa Valley, and it was fun. We're not much of wine drinkers, but it's a beautiful part of the country. We came home, she's like, I just don't feel good. I feel bloated. I said, well, of course you just drank too much, you know, Merlot or whatever. <laughs> so she just continued to be bloating, and, and finally the symptoms be, became um, pretty significant that I actually misutilized what emergency departments are for and brought her to one of our emergency departments, um, an Ohio Health Emergency Department, and had one of my partners take care of her and um, got a CAT scan, and her belly was full of cancer. Um, and our life changed forever. That was um, a couple days after Christmas, 2014. Um, my wife was diagnosed with 3C um, serous ovarian carcinoma. Um, it had traveled everywhere in the uh, abdominal cavity, unfortunately. Um, everyone hears such great things about the James, so there we did. We went. We got transferred that evening, um, and she had a total hysterectomy and a debulking um, diverting ostomy, um, and they put in a peritoneal port for forthcoming chemotherapy. Our life changed forever. At the time, we had two boys, um, about four and two and a half years old. Um, it was a long journey, um, two years and one day from diagnosis till death. She had a very transient period of remission um, at about the one-year mark uh, and then recurred re really rapidly. We went everywhere. We went to MD Anderson, Hopkins, and Mayo. Um, I found it to be my mission on earth to ensure that she got nothing but the best care and that we were doing everything right. And, and the interesting thing is, every time we went somewhere or spoke with someone, they said, you're at the James, the Gynon group there is the best in the country. We agree with everything they have done without, without fail. That, that was the response we got. So that was incredibly reassuring. Um, Labor Day of 17 was horrible. She just had, pardon me, Labor Day of 16 was horrible. She had just had an admission um, for sepsis. She had line sepsis. Um, she had to explant everything, her port. She had percutaneous nephrostomy tubes and had to take everything out and start over. She came home and she was miserable. Um, oh, oh, and throughout that entire time, she had a malignant bowel obstruction, which is, other than symptomatic treatment, pr pretty pretty hard to manage. Um, she came home and was at the end of August of 16 and we woke up one morning and she said, I can't do this anymore. 
and I, I, it, it, I, she was supposed to start chemo the following week, and I said, I agree. And it was the, the worst morning ever, and we called hospice, and she was miserable. Uh, a hospice intake nurse came out and couldn't get her symptoms under control at home, so we came here. We spent our Labor Day here in 2016, um, and a godsend was Dr. Hudak. And Dr. Hudak and I met for coffee a couple days ago, and we were kind of reminiscing about that day. And I'm, I'm an ER doctor, so by nature we're pretty aggressive folks. I said to Dr. Hudak, I said, here's what I want. I want my wife to be able to sleep at night. I want her to die at home. I want her to be awake during the day so she can play with our boys and enjoy them because I knew time was limited. And I think you were, it was a big ask, right? I, I think. I said, oh, is that all? Is that all? <laughs> and what was Marin doing 48 hours later? She was eating cornflakes. And I remember being quite nervous about that because I was like, couldn't you have taken it a little easier? She went right for the gusto. So, you know, a lot of details during those two years that, that are probably not pertinent today to today. But I, I, I'm a believer. I, I mean, the, the, the recognition that hospice and palliation needs to come in sooner than later is, is so important for you guys to understand. And I knew, not, as an ER doctor, you know, we don't do hospice. You know, we save everyone. Little old grandma comes in, 98 years old, I, and no known cone status. I, you know, we, we tube her and we send her up to the unit, and they probably withdraw care later that day. But that's not how we, that's not how we as emergency clinicians think. So I think differently now. Um, I talk about this with patients in the ER. You know, before I tube you, I want you to know, you know, you're... Your chance of coming off the vent is, is this. You know, you're going to get these complications. You're going to get pneumonia. You're going to get sepsis. You're, you know, your grandma was anoxic for a really long time. So I, I'm, a, I, I'm a, a totally different individual and, and clinician as well. Um, Marin went home about a week after Labor Day. She spent seven days here. It was amazing, as amazing as a, a place like this can, can be. Um, Marin was eating cornflakes. Um, she was doing great. She, we kind of, we did octreotide. Dr. Hudak did octreotide for her, you know, bowel symptoms, and it gave her a new life. A couple things that Marin said was, "I'm living now. I'm eating my cornflakes. I'm playing with the boys." And we went home. And in between Labor Day and a couple days after Christmas, when she died, we um, we went to Hocking Hills and rented a cabin and with the kids and some friends and family. Marin and I took a cooking class, and, and she was not able to do any of this during her illness. So I, that's where the, you're painting this stark sort of before-after picture. You told a story of disease treatment until your wife said, I can't do this anymore. Shift to hospice care, admit for symptom control to Kobacker House, and then it, the way you're describing it, it was different than what you expected. And part of that was medical treatment that you didn't know about made a difference, but there were other pieces there, too, that were different. There were other pieces, uh, not just for Marin. For myself, there were pre-bereavement resources, which were amazing, and I certainly took advantage of and continue to take advantage of. There were resources for my children. Uh, we had a great hospice nurse, uh, Amber. You'll, you'll meet her. She's great. And she would just sit at the kitchen table and color with my children. I mean, you, you didn't get that lovey-dovey feeling at the James. And I, this is by no means a knock on the James, but it just wasn't in the cards to think about 
palliation or, or hospice for my wife. She was, you know, this is what we're going to do. We were on a bunch of trials, and if that doesn't work, we have plan B, plan C, plan D, and it was all medical therapies. So the, the, the approach is so much different. And Marin, these are her words, not mine. Marin, Marin felt emancipated while she was on the service. She felt liberated and free, and she was able to do things, and things that she wasn't able to do for the prior 20 months. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in some ways, your story, um, she got enrolled in hospice care in order to get treatments that would make her feel better and your family cope better, but it, it then raises sort of the question, well, why, why did it take that to get those involved? I don't have an answer for you. I, I, I wish that this would have happened earlier. Uh, All the chemotherapy was a fool's errand at the end, and and everyone recognized that, myself included. Perhaps her team recognized that too, but that's just what we do, and that's not the right thing in in my mind. Uh uh Now, uh, Frank laid out that that sort of model of of how an individual and a family uh, experiences illness, and you've, you've illustrated some piece of that I want to go after a couple of the places that you didn't. If you were to describe Marin's emotional response to this illness, what would you say? Terrified um, and pain. So pain and physical pain or other, other kinds of pain? physical and emotional pain. And emotional pain. So fear. And tell us a little more about Marin's personality. She was an accountant. So, so different than an ER doctor who's managing 97 things, you know, at once. So, it was a good fit. Um, she, she, um, she wanted the facts. She wanted to be an account. So, like, in medicine, 2 plus 2 is not 4, right? No matter what you do. It's as close to 4 as you can get. But, it, but in accounting, it is 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it has to be 4. And you have to prove that it's 4. So, Marin was um, a very precise individual and, and wanted, um, wanted the data put in front of her and Here's what we're going to do. So a precise individual then faced with a disease and medicine that's a lot of gray, how did she cope? What was her coping style? Because those two don't fit together. They don't. I think it was frustrating for her because there weren't really great treatments or therapies available for her particular type of cancer. Very frustrating for her. So because many people who who are into control... There, it, it, there's an underlying anxiety that's kept under control by being, and yet here's something she couldn't control. Oh, that's right. And so anxiety and fear was a big part of her experience. But when we came here, she, it was the first time, her words, not mine, that she felt in the driver's seat of her care. Okay, so the more control she'd have would help with that anxiety. It would help fear. with her spirit, her emotional stability, absolutely. Got it. And then the, you said you have two boys... And, and then you've, you've painted a picture of you're an ED doc, she's an accountant, you have her two boys. But what did this illness do to your, the practical issues of you as a family working together? I was working, the working dad. My wife was a stay-at-home mom, and it was a big change when she got sick because, you know, a, a massive debulking seven-hour surgery, you know, that takes months from which to recover. Um, so... I had to rearrange my work schedule, and she kind of just hung out at home, and I, we had to have different resources. Grandparents, both set of grandparents, thank God, were very involved, um, and babysitters, nannies, friends. So you had to marshal a whole large number of people to 
compensate. It takes an army. It. And, and your boys, describe how they're, as well as you can tell, their take on all this. Amazing. My kids had to mature really quickly in a really short period of time, and they're um, very caring, loving, empathetic boys, both during and afterward. Uh -huh. And their their concept of sick is so much different than different than what sick really means to us, a six and four year old. So describe what you could tell. What what did being sick mean to a six and a four year old? Mommy loses her hair. Why does mommy have a bag of medicine? on her belly, which was the ostomy. Why does mommy have tubes coming out of her belly? Why, why does daddy have to shower mommy? You know, no four-year-old should know the word chemotherapy. I, I just don't think. They should know Power Rangers and Pokemon, but not, not the word chemotherapy. And they did. And medicine would be shipped to the house every day, you know? I mean, she had a port, and mommy's medicine came here today. So th that's their concept of sick. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And for, for many children, there's, a, a, there's anger because there are things they expect from mommy and then mommy can't do them. Did you see any of that? Yeah, but I think they acclimated rather rapidly and realized that mommy couldn't do it. So instead they just gave mommy lots of hugs, hung out with her, watched TV, sit in mommy's chair with her, get mommy a blanket. And for you, what was that like? Because I think to be a doc and a husband, those are two different roles. Yeah, they merged into one, like it or not. It was very hard, but I, I didn't think twice about it. it. I mean, I don't know, in your wedding vows, you say in sickness and health, and in health, and, and that's just what you do, and I know everyone in this room would do the same for their loved one. I'm, I'm positive of it. You don't realize it until you have to do it. Um, it, was, it was hard. And then that last domain, most, almost everyone with a serious illness wrestles with the why question. Why did I get this? I'm curious if your wife, what she made of that. Why did I get ovarian cancer? That's the one thing she just couldn't figure out. Uh -huh. Can you share any of the, what the struggles were around that? Why me? What did I do wrong in this life? Questioned religion. Mm -hmm. You know, we had just started our life in Columbus. We just started to kind of have a great core group of friends. Mm -hmm. The boys were doing great. She was, they were just getting into sports and activities. And so just the time, I think the I think she thought that cancer was a disease of the elderly. I think she mistakenly believed that cancer was a disease of the elderly. And why is it happening to me? I'm 35 years young, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. why me? Mm -hmm. And you, did you struggle with that why? I, I every day wish that it was me, not her, going through this. It just seems like kids need a mom more than they need a dad, in my opinion. That might not be the case. Do you have a faith background for you and your wife? Jewish. Uh-huh. And what role did that play in the illness experience? Not a very strong one. Okay. The rabbi would show up at the James and we'd kick him out. <laughs> and we, so then we just, we, we changed our, uh, we changed our uh, religious preference to either no comment or n slash a when we realized that you show up on a list when you're uh, of, you know, to, you show up on a list to your respective congregation to which you belong anytime you're in any of the major hospitals here in town. So you're making a distinction between religion and the support that you needed. Yeah, we didn't, she nor I found it useful whatsoever.
And that was just unique to us. That might not be the case for many well, others. The goal here is to just sort of illustrate what it was like for you all. It was not at all part of the two years whatsoever. Okay. So I'm curious, Dr. Hudak, in the, in the role of palliative medicine doc in this story, what was it like for you? It was, pardon me, a little intimidating. Um, Marin um, was quite a presence, and she was a very exceedingly knowledgeable patient, and then had this, you know, ADD ER doctor um, coming at me. Um, but I felt such a desire to try to start somewhere to help you guys both. And um, I knew it was going to be a tall order. And, uh, you know, we try the medicines, you know, we had her on octreotide, we had her on steroids, we had her on different antiemetics, we figured out what was really causing her nausea sometimes was pain or anxiety and not the bowel obstruction, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And within just a couple of days, it, it just the transformation was magical. And to hear Marin say, I never thought I could feel this good again. So what's it like for you as, because I think many people um, frame palliative medicine as the handholders, the they're there, talk a lot, help people cope, and yet you're saying there's a use the drugs chemistry part. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think we, we certainly used both. I mean, we used... The, unique medical knowledge to try to assist when somebody's disease is past the point of continued treatment. Um, also, I, I really got close with Paul and Marin and um, uh, Marin's mom and dad. And so I remember Marin saying, why are you spending so much time with me? I'm like, because that's what we do. Um, and she would always thank me for spending so much time with her. But it was just it was just so important and valuable for us to have that connection and relationship and for that trust factor to build. Because let me tell you, I know she didn't trust me the first time I walked into that room. Well, and that's one of the things I'm hoping to illustrate here, the 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 professional reward of working in this field. And so you're describing knowing something about um, treatment of the nausea and vomiting of bowel obstruction and being successful at it. But this connection piece, the, say more about the professional satisfaction, the elements, if you were trying to pull it apart. So I think that one of the reasons that I do this work is because I see a lot of what we do in modern medicine is that we do something to people. It may or may not help them uh, have those goals that uh, Frank talked about of living their life the way they want to. And so to be able to help somebody achieve the goal of being able to go home and go to her boys' soccer game um, later that week um, it's just the, the satisfaction to me is over the moon. Um, it's deeply meaningful work emotionally. Uh, it's challenging, but I've never done anything, um, you know, more satisfying in medicine. And Paul, from your perspective there, again, this image of 
all right, things are going so badly that your wife one morning says, that's it, we're done, you support her. For many people, moving to Kobacker House is like going to the deaf house. Is that what you were thinking? No, at least not what I was hoping. You know, to your point, we were so used to like this, you know, you guys are, we all trained in medicine, this huge team coming in at the James. You know, initially the intern would come in and then later in the day the whole team would come in. And if it wasn't your primary, you know, it's a, the Gynon group is five or six or seven docs. If it wasn't your primary, you know, that attending barely knew you and they had one foot out the door. It did not feel this way at all with Christine. I, I mean, we were just not used to having someone in our home for an hour. And even Marin would say, you know, don't you have somewhere else to be? And the answer was universally, no, I'm here for you. I have all the time in the world. So no, I did not think that we were going here to die. I think we were going here, believe it or not, to live. And I will tell you, Marin lived from, after three days in here, until about, up till four days um, before she died. And, and Dr. Hudak was never nothing but honest with us and said, you know, here's what you can expect. Here's what I think is going on. Um, and her time frame of things was spot on, plus or minus a day or so. I mean, it's just unbelievable prognostication. And it was very helpful for us. That, well, you were describing your wife as details and information helps her, helped her anxiety. Undoubtedly. Right? And the fear, but somebody that would give it to her straight. Just a different way of thinking. For the medical oncologists or the surgical oncologists, um, the nausea undoubtedly had to be from the malignant bowel obstruction. But you said, well, you know, there's probably a component of anticipatory anxiety causing nausea, fear causing nausea, and, and it's just, it was just revolutionary for us. Didn't even know that these possibilities were out there. Just not how we were used to thinking. And a piece that you brought up that, you know, Christine, your job is as an inpatient doc here at Kobacker House, and yet I'm hearing about home visits. So how did that happen? So that happened because there was a really good hospice nurse who um, listened to Paul and Marin. And after the home hospice doc, who is excellent, had been out a couple of times, just didn't have that same connected feeling. And so the nurse, Amber, called me and said, we're wondering if maybe Dr. Hudak could come to the home. And I said, I can, because it seemed like a great idea. And so then um, I was probably out three or four times, um, and we would set up our calendars for our next visit before I left. And uh, again, it was that walking with people in their journey, really meaningful and profound. So what I'd like to do now is, because um, you've painted a really uh, a complete picture of this illness experience and this um, finding something uh, to help you that you didn't expect for a longer period than you expected. What questions do you have? Yes, and I'll repeat it for the, for the camera. Okay. I'm just curious to know if palliative care was involved prior to your hospice experience and whether or not you found it helpful. It's a great question and the answer is no. And I wish that it was. It was never even suggested to us. Um, 
I feel like certain patients are in certain situations when you bring up the idea of palliation or palliative care that um, I've heard it described as a mental blow, or yeah, especially so-and-so is a fighter and we, we don't even want to consider it now. Um, I understand in hindsight it's probably difficult to answer this, but do you think you would have, how, how do you think you would have received a recommendation for palliation at the beginning? I think we would have been very adverse to it because, you know, I mean, my wife was on line three and four of chemo, um, a fair amount of trials, early stage trials. Um, but like you had said, she was just a fighter, and, and that's just what we do, right? Fight till the end. So I think we probably would have adversely responded to it and not at all would have accepted it. Um, yeah, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure that's how we would have answered it. Thank you for sharing. Oh, sure. I'm curious if you could share your and or your son's experience with bereavement care. Sure. Great question. Um, my wife said, you know, I think she told you or a social worker, I'm worried about my husband. He needs to talk to someone. So I started pre-bereavement. Who would have thought? It's like almost oxymoronic, right? And it helped a lot. Um, and I continue to go, and it's... um a free service from this institution for 13 months. I said, why 13 months? They said, well, it helps you get through that one-year anniversary. It just didn't make sense to me. Now it makes a whole lot of sense. Maren's been gone for like six and a half months. Um, my boys did not have any pre-bereavement. Uh, they, they do see a, a private counselor, not affili affiliated with this institution, and they do play, play therapy, and it's great. Started right after Maren died, going about once a week. Now we're down to every three or four weeks, and it's incredibly helpful. It's incredibly helpful for many reasons. One, it's, it's a good barometer. Every, every parent thinks their kids are the best, but you know, you need some more objective data. So it's a good barometer <laughs> that she says, yeah, the boys are doing okay for where they're at. You know, you hear from their teachers, they're not getting in trouble at camp, you know, so those are all the barometers you need. And, and this is probably the most important barometer. Um, and other resources are available for the children too, in school, et cetera, et cetera. So it, um, just because the patient dies doesn't mean that Kobacher and Ohio Health Hospice goes away. I mean, I'm definitely taking advantage of um, a counselor here in this building. In fact, we walk Peggy's path for our sessions unless it's raining, and it's um, incredibly, incre and I'm not ashamed of it at all. It's in incredibly helpful for me. You know, what happened to my wife is the worst possible thing. No one in this room should even come close to remotely having to endure it. But, but you, you have two paths that you can go down, and it's, it's binary. It's one or the other. You can crawl under a hole and be sad forever, or you can, you know, life is for living. I, I mean, I miss my wife terribly every day, and the saddest part of this is, you know, my boys are growing up motherless. That's the worst part about it. But I, I will tell you, Marin was emancipated. I mean, she, she, and it was all because of you, I, I, sincerely. And if, if there's any message for you guys who are going to do the same thing as Dr. Hudak, it, it's do the same thing. I mean, Marin died and she was ready to die. And it, was, and it was a beautiful thing. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I mean, her life was horrible. I mean, she couldn't be a mom, which is what was the best thing that, you know, that's why she was on this earth. So, we're all doing great because of our experience here for three months. It was just such a drop in the bucket, three months out of 24 months, but it was the most profound 
and liberating for Marin, undoubtedly. Other questions? Thank you again for sharing your story. Um, how do you feel your role as a physician influenced this whole experience, um, you know, for both Marin and your family? You know, we're ER doctors, so we like instant credit. I know there's a couple of other ER doctors in the room. We like instant gratification. We were talking before. I, I cut my own lawn because it's long, and I'll probably do it when I leave here, and then and it's short, so it's instant gratification. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I'm never, I'm, everyone's like, you should just outsource it. You're so busy. I'm like, no. I mean, it's like, it's a very small lot. So, you know, it takes an hour. So it's just fun, and it's just gratifying. And like, in the ER, we like to fix things. You know, if the lung is down, we put a tube in, and then the lung is up. You know what I mean? If they're blood pressure is low, we give them a couple bags of fluid, and if that doesn't work, we give them some pressors, and we fix it. And it's amazing. And I was very, you know, I work at Riverside and Grant, and they're very busy, as I'm sure the majority of you guys, probably you guys, you know, I mean, so don't have time to sit down with patients for a really long time like you did with Marin. So, and the team that saw Marin at the James, she was inpatient all the time for various complications, bowel obstruction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're, they have one foot out the door, you know. You see the intern at 5 a.m., maybe you were up because they were drawing her blood at the same time, but you barely remember it. And then the team comes in, and they're, they're, they're out so quick. And then you have a question, so then the intern or the, the mid-level resident comes back. I don't know. i got to ask my senior. Who, the senior comes back. I don't know. i got to ask my fellow. The fellow comes back, says, well, it's July. I don't know. I gotta, I'm a brand-new fellow. i got to ask the attending. <laughs> so you, you started attempting to get an answer of, you know, are we going to go home? Are we going to switch from heparin to Lovenox to something else? Well, you got the answer, I don't know, 12 or 24 hours later. And that's not what I like, and that's not what an ER doctor is, you know? So it has taught me to slow down in the ER, to sit down with a patient, to reevaluate the patient more frequently, to come back and say, hey, you know, Mr. Jones, the chest X-ray looked great. Pa patients want to hear results really quickly, and I never realized that. I would go in at the beginning, say, right, we're going to do a big workup. We're going to get a lot of CAT scans. We're going to give you some pain meds, and I'll come back when the workup's over, and you'll probably go home. And now I go back into the room as much as I can, and the patients love it. And after Marin died, I find myself, with f exceptions that you can count on one hand, I've never cried with a patient. I, I cried in, with some pediatric resuscitations that unfortunately don't go well, cause, but even before I was a parent. But it's, we're numb, right? I mean... I don't know, I, work, I worked Friday and guy coded and died and that's what we do. It's terrible. It's terrible. And I walked on into the next room and it's almost as if it didn't, didn't, hadn't happened. And now I'm getting out later. I'm spending more time with patients. Um, I'm reassuring patients more. I'm sitting down with patients. I d Prescanies. You guys know about Prescanies? My comments were, Great doctor, really nice, really funny, loud, fast talker, and seemed like he was in a rush. And now they're not, those aren't my comments anymore. So it was, um, and I, it's because of you. You sat down with Barrett and we said, don't you have to go see another patient? He said, no, I'm in no rush. And I never understood that. I was not able to not know rushing, because that's what we do. And I wish some of my partners would, learn a little bit from this too. You can't sit for an hour in a patient's room at Riverside. You just can't because you have 29 patients to see before your shift's over. You just can't. But it's nice to just sit down 
for a minute or two and spend time with family. So it's made me um, a much better physician, a much better human, a much better dad, not rushed, much better friend and son. Great question. Are there other questions? I was wondering, you, you were talking about your experience with um, discussing prognosis with Dr. Hudak and how helpful that was. I was wondering, what was your experience with discussions of prognosis prior to the experience here at Kobacker along the way of your journey of different um, treatments and things like that? Another great question. I think sometimes I knew more about ovarian cancer than some of the gynecologic oncologists because I just made it my mission to know everything, every piece of literature. I mean, trametinib, and like I knew things that were in the pipeline maybe before they did. So I knew what the data was, and when we asked, they said, yeah, five-year survival rate is like you know 20%. That's what we heard, 3C, five-year survival rate, 20%. Those are the numbers we heard. That was it. So probably go into some remission, and then ovarian cancer comes back. By definition, 3C ovarian cancer is not curable. It comes back. Make it a little better, suppress the disease, maybe get a CAT scan that says no evidence of disease, maybe the CA125 trends down or undetectable, but this is a life disease and eventually it will win. That was what we were told. It's true. When Dr. Hudak came in, on day one we were here, she said, both, and I, both of us kind of privately discussed that we didn't think Marin was going to make it out of here. She wasn't eating, she wasn't drinking, she wasn't peeing, and then three days, two days later she was eating cornflakes here. And on Halloween, we were at Hocking Hills. I said, you know, I said, but it was almost like a sense of false hope. I had Marin back. The boys had mommy back. I mean, that was amazing. So I, 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 it, I needed a reality check. Marin's parents needed a reality check. And we said to you, I think privately, what does this mean? And you said, before New Year's, that she's going to go, 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 go. And then she's going to fall off the cliff. And on... December 20th or so, Marin stopped eating, drinking, peeing, pooing, talking, couldn't go up the steps, got a hospital bed, and she died on the 27th, just as predicted. I mean, just as predicted. If I may ask one follow-up question, too. You, you mentioned that day when she woke up and said she wasn't, you know, no more treatments. Had that ever been discussed prior to that day? Had that ever been kind of a, an option that was really discussed on the table with her treating teams, her oncologists? I'm curious. Yeah. It wasn't an option for me ever to give up. For me. And I don't think it was an option for Marin either. Um, the team had never, we never heard the word hospice or palliation from the Gynon team. Never, not once. In fact, we always had a contingency. You know, these trials are kind of crazy. One trial was pretty cardiotoxic, and her EF dropped to like 22%. But we already knew what Plan B was going to be because if you know the trial didn't work, so it was never presented to us, and we never asked about it. We were the patients and the family members. It wasn't our job to ask about therapies, but it wasn't presented to us. And Marin woke up and said, I, "It was a horrible night. She was vomiting the whole night. Finally, got symptoms. Under, we were doing medicines at home." And she had a port that we just left accessed. And um, well, we woke up one morning and made some calls, and the rest was history. That was the best decision we ever made in those two years, un un undoubtedly. Pro probably needed to come sooner. 
So I want to have an eye on clock and want to, I know you wanted, to, Frank, did you want to debrief the session with the fellows without us, so we should probably bring this to a close. No, if you'd like to actually ask, what are people taking away? I know there was one more question. Yes, there's another question okay. over here, I think there's at least one. Okay, for OK on time. Okay, thank you for sharing. I just have one question. And um, after your wife passed away, what the what did the Patrick Care team, um, uh, hosp uh, hospice team, still do for your family and kids? Yeah, if it's very yeah. helpful. Yeah. Bereavement services, letters, checking in, resources, resources for me, resources for the kid, resources for grandparents. Um, seems like the opportunities are endless. It's been amazing. You know, like, I, by no means is my objective to um, slander, you know, the James, or we can just refer to it as M Marin's site of care um, pre-initiation of palliation. But they just went like this when we said we're going on hospice. Honest to golly. I emailed with her primary once or twice and, and that was it. I called them when she died and didn't hear much. So, but I can't get rid of these Kobecker folks and I'm happy about that. And it's amazing. And it's all funded on philanthropy, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Are there other, so in bringing this to close, where's our microphone? So I'm kind to go, let's pass the microphone. What's, Frank set this, session up for the, the broad picture of hospice and care, palliative care broadly. Then we have a very specific example, but the goal is to inform you of that big picture. So what's the, what's the take home? What's one take home? And we'll pass the microphone around from that. Well, and particularly thinking about either the need or the value. We think about quality, we think about cost, we think about safety issues. What do you take away focused on the need and the associated value. Hi there. Thanks again so much for coming in. Wonderful story. Really appreciate it. Um, a big takeaway for me is I think balancing this idea of fighting and balancing the idea of well, what is the win and what is like how when we redefine and define our goals of care and what they are and whether the goals of care are to you know beat this cancer or whether it's to eat some cornflakes. I think the balance of that is so individual with patients and their families. And, you know, even when we know the specific medicine, a palliative medicine, you know, being very open to working with the families and really feeling them out and where they're at in their journey. I wonder, just because of time, can we just be... Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. You illustrated the possibilities. Can we just be short? Sure. So everybody gets a chance to have a say. Uh, one thing I've taken out of this is just the, the value of being present, both with the family and the patient, no matter what field. So it's been great. Uh, the big thing I can I'd say I've taken away is that people don't use it early enough, and then it's hard to distinguish when you should use it versus when you should keep fighting for like treatment possibilities. Yes, I think um, palliative care should be something that every doctor knows about and can discuss with the patients. I think maybe we're doing this now. Mm. When the patient receives chemotherapy or radiotherapy, 
they ask her help from palliative care consult. Earlier, maybe it's well better feeling. Um, the the value for me personally is you know you talk about being numb to running a code and people passing away, but um, I certainly was hearing every word you were saying and feeling the pain and the triumphs that you were going through. And so I, I really appreciate being able to connect with you and what your family went through. Obviously, I know you, Paul, and I thank you very much for coming. I, the thing I take away from is just seeing the frame shift that you have, that you have from going through all this and how it can really totally benefit the family, not just the patient. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I think what I take away is uh, just the quality of life that she had um, whenever you decided to come here and just how important that can be um, as opposed to, you know, the prior uh, fight that she went through um, prior to that and how hard that was. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you and so sorry for your loss. Um, I think what I'm taking away most is just how broad that ripple effect can be. Being a bedside nurse at the James and now being an NP at the James, um, one thing that I would love to advocate for is a palliative referral or consult from day one with a you know, non-curable disease. I believe every single patient would benefit from that. So thank you. Thank you so much again. Um, I think I can echo a lot of what I've heard already, but I think another thing that I thought of as you were talking is just that this process is much like a dance and kind of following the lead of um, the patient and family and assessing uh, readiness because I think it is really hard to, to um, uh, preempt or protect from suffering until you've seen suffering. And, and so um, just really listening and, and journeying alongside the patient and the family and just trying to, to kind of follow the lead um, in, in, as, as in a dance. So thank you so much. I heard you share a goal of ensuring that Marin got the best care possible, and I'm so happy for you that you were able to find that. Um, I also wish that palliative care was an automatic referral um, at diagnosis, um, something that would be necessarily taken out of the hands of the primary team or the family, that it was just automatically done. Um, I think echoing what someone said earlier about defining goals of care, I, I'm just glad to hear that um, you had small triumphs. It seems like just the fact that, you know, cornflakes, you've said it a few times, just that specific detail, the, the small triumphs along the path. I'm glad you were able to have those. Um, I think it's important to remember, and you shared this too, that um, there's a lot of support out there um, when you're going through this process, and nobody needs to do this alone. I really take away the message of the power of love, and in this case, really with the physician, and I'm sure the rest of the team. And and uh, when you compare three months out of 24, I'm so moved by the fact that what remains is uh, that experience that's uh, based in love. So as before we finish, Paul, let's give you the last word. What What do you most want this group of physicians and NPs to take away as they are um, learning this field? 
If you could do exactly what Dr. Hudak did for Marin, I think there's more impact in that than in any other field of medicine. We die, right? That's death and taxes. That's it, right? That's the old. That's the old adage, and and we celebrated life the last three months, and and the the, the prior twenty some months were miserable. No husband should have to shower their wife out of necessity, right? That should be a passionate thing, and that's not what was happening. No husband should, no spouse should have to shower their spouse or change their ostomy. So. We lived. I mean, Marin and I took a cooking class on December 7th at Sir Lata at Easton. Never in a million years would she have been able to do that until Dr. Hudak got involved. That's a fact. There weren't many good days. And we had more good days in those three months than we did in the prior 20. And it was all because of this institution. I'm, 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 I'm so positive. It... um. Everyone asks me how I'm doing. I, I'm doing fine, and a, a lot of it is because of we had like some time together the last three months. We weren't sleeping in the hospital. We weren't getting woken up by the IV beeping, you know. And I'm doing great because of that. Me and Marin did great. It was, I mean, Marin did great. It was an amazing three months. We went to Hocking Hills. You know, I mean, not, not a chance we would have been able to do that prior. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.